We turn in Mark's Gospel to the ninth chapter. Once again, Mark chapter 9. We will pick up next Lord's Day, the Lord willing, our uh, series on marriage as we go to Mark chapter 10 as Jesus teaches about divorce. And so we'll tie those in as well then with that uh, series. We also begin uh, next Lord's Day uh, as well, our annual summer going through the alphabet of names in Scripture. Uh, and so I uh, invite you back to as we begin that series as well this year. We're on the letter N this year. So many interesting characters in God's Word and God's grace emerges we're going to begin reading again in Mark chapter 9 at verse 33. And then I'm reading through the end of the chapter, but our text is actually the last two verses of the chapter. But we need the context of those verses. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of, evil of me. The one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's try the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, may we enter this house of yours as humble children innocent in heart and in mind. May we put away all the evil trappings of the world. May we 
accept your word as that of an innocent child. May we follow you in a with a desire to combat the evilness of this world. Give us that strength, Lord. Give us that innocence so that we can spread that to others in this world. We pray for Pastor Bob. Pray that you will give him the words to deliver to us that will give us that strength. Work through him, your servant, Lord, so that we can be your agents in this otherwise dark world. We just ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. And amen. Three things to look at from these two verses that are before us this morning. First of all, a contrast. Secondly, a call. And thirdly, a command. A contrast, a call, and a command. Last Lord's Day evening, we dealt with the fire of destruction. That fire of destruction, Jesus describes in verses 42 through 48. That destruction of Gehenna. The destruction that we have translated before us, hell. The unquenchable fire that comes to those who are not believers in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ at the end of their life and then for all of eternity with body and soul. It is the fire of destruction. We could say it is the fire of the garbage pit. It is the fire that unceasingly burns and destroys. We dealt with that last Sunday night. If you want it, the fuller context, get the CD. But that's where Jesus was. Now we have the contrast. Verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. He just finished talking about fire in 48, and the fire is not quenched. The fire of hell, the fire of Gehenna, that's never quenched. It just is a continual destruction over and over and over and over and over and unceasing. But then he turns and, and gives to us this other fire, saying, for everyone will be salted with fire. Is everyone then going to experience hell? No, that is not what Jesus is doing here. He's showing a contrast. The fire of hell contrasted to the fire of persecution. That's what he's talking about. And he says, everyone, verse 49, everyone. Take your Bible. 2 Timothy. Book of 2 Timothy. Chapter 3. Verse 12, indeed, here it is again, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All will be persecuted. Jesus, all, everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone who is seeking to live the godly life that Christ calls us to live is going to suffer some form, some type of persecution. 
It's going to happen. It's going to take place. The same thought is repeated for us in 1 Thessalonians 3, 3 and 4, 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. That idea that, that there is no such thing as a Christian who does not face some form of persecution. If you're going to live the godly life in Christ, if you're going to live the separated, holy life that Christ calls us to, you will suffer persecution. Everyone will be salted with fire. It occurs. It happens. Sometimes it happens by imprisonment. Sometimes it happens by the taking of one's life. Sometimes there are those brothers and sisters in Christ who become martyrs of the cause. A Stephen of the New Testament. And hundreds and thousands like him. Who because they desired to live the holy life, the truthful life that Christ calls us to. To speak the truth with love. They've been martyred for that cause. Others have suffered the loss of property. Others have been forced to be separated from their families. Others have experienced job loss. Which occurs even today. Company decides, well, now we're going to start to open on Sunday. Well, I'm not, I, I can't do that. that I'm not, I, I can't do that. The, the commandment is clear. I cannot work on the Sabbath day. Well, find another job then. And there's the sneers. There's the looks. There's the words of disdain. There's the Facebook walls and there's the posts that, that rant and rave against a believer in Jesus Christ. There's the being ostracized, perhaps at school or even at work, because of one's Christian stand and Christian principles. Everyone. No exception. Okay, you, you can't put in the mouth of Jesus, everyone will be salted with fire, and then somehow excuse it away and say, well, Jesus didn't mean everyone. No, Jesus meant everyone, Paul meant everyone, Peter meant everyone. Who is living a Christian life is going to experience in some way some form of persecution. They might say, well, Pastor, I, I don't think I've experienced that in my life. Well, one of two things is perhaps true. That one, it's still coming. Or two, perhaps it's been ongoing and you haven't seen it. Perhaps it is existing in your life. You're just unaware of its existence. Or it is still coming. And this message is simply a message of preparation for you to be ready, to be prepared. But the third thing I would add to that is this. We need to be willing. We need to be willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. 
And maybe that's the question to ask. Am I willing to suffer for the cause of Christ? You know, I was thinking about this uh, this week with it, with it being Memorial Day tomorrow and thinking that, that when a young man or a young woman signs up for military service, there is with that signature of their name the real possibility that they might die doing their duty. Now, sometimes in times of peace, that seems kind of remote. But it still exists, doesn't it? That those of you who, who were drafted in during Vietnam or other eras, you know what that meant. You, you know there was a possibility. One of my brothers was, just came in from California and he had showed us some pictures of a cemetery uh, up in Minnesota, a military cemetery. And, and it, just, it just takes your breath away as you look at the Vietnam, as you look at Korea. It, it, it's, it's all of those markers. But there's that willingness, right? That, that's part of what we admire about those such as Ross, who, who, who's in the military, those of you who serve, that, that's part of what we admire. They went and they knew they could die. Well, Christ is saying here, are you willing? Are you willing to suffer for me? Are you willing to be persecuted for me? Because every Christian, every person, that God calls to himself every person who commits their life to the Lord Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Secondly, this persecution, this fire, is not the fire of punishment. It's not the fire of destruction. This fire is the fire of testing. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. In contrast to that fire of Gehenna, which is the continual ongoing destruction, 1 Peter chapter 4, pick it up at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to you to test you. Test you. What's the purpose of the fiery trial? What's the purpose of this fire of being salted with fire that Jesus speaks of in verse 49? What's the purpose of that? As though something strange were happening, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is Revealed, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you will be blessed but the, because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. What's Peter saying? The test is not for God. God does not need to test the sincerity of your faith. Does he? 
Does God not know how sincere your faith is? Is God up in heaven going, boy, you know that, Bob, I don't know. I'm not sure how sincere. Boy, you know, I know a lot of stuff. I know all about the stars, and I can, you know, make H2O, and I can do this, and I can make planets, and, and I can know the human body inside and out, and, but I control kings and so on. But I just don't know if Bob's a genuine Christian or not. Of course he knows that. He knows you. He knows you as a genuine Christian. Well, what's the purpose of the test then? For us. The purpose of being salted by fire is for us. So we will know our faith is genuine and sincere. We will know it. We will know it because we share in Christ's suffering. And what does Peter say? Rejoice in that. Why? Because your faith was tested and it was proved genuine to you. To you. I tried to think of an example of this and. I, Probably the nearest thing I that just it, it it pales in comparison, but just to try to make a connection. When you take the driver's test, any driver's test, you know, you're you're trying to get a license for something. When you take that test and when you pass. Who do you think rejoices more? You or the person giving you the test? Right? You get, think about it, kid. Maybe you just finished a driver's test or you're going there. And, okay, so you go to maybe Century Driving School. You go through your testing and so on. And, you know, you, he's there or she's there busy making her checklist or whatever. And you get out of the car after it's all done. And they say, you passed. Now, who do you suppose is the most happiest at that moment? Are they like, you passed, you passed. Oh, I'm your instructor. It's so wonderful you passed. Probably not. They're like, okay, next. But you are. You're ecstatic. God tests us. Not for his benefit but for ours, so that we can be ecstatic over the fact that our faith is proved genuine. But there is another reason for this being salted with fire, these fires of persecution. Not only that it occurs to every believer, not only that it tests the value of to us, but that it also purifies. Fire purifies. It removes the dross. It removes the impurities. The impurities get separated out from that which is the purity. Notice the context. Jesus has been talking about sin. The sin of the eye, the sin of the hand, the sin of the foot. How does that impurity... How does that sin get removed out of the Christian's life? 
One of the means is being salted with fire. One of the means is persecution. When we are persecuted, sin becomes less and less desirous. This is what God does. God takes these fires, these times of persecution in our life, he brings them in, and it removes the impurity. Just like you take gold and you put it under a hot fire and the impurities come off from it. That dross is removed. Everyone will be salted with fire. See, now you step back and say, well, why would God do that to all of us? Why would every Christian, why would God have every Christian be salted with fire, with these fires of persecution? Why? One, so that we know in our own hearts we have the assurance of knowing that our faith is genuine. And two, because by that means God removes the impurity out of our life. He removes the sin. What a marvelous thing these fires of persecution are. They make us ecstatic, and they make us holy by God's purpose and by God's design. Certainly a contrast to the garbage pit of Gehenna and of hell. Secondly, there is a call here as well. Verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. That's the call. Have salt in yourselves. Now, first of all, in order for us to, to better understand this passage, we have to understand the value of salt in the day and age of Jesus. Salt is actually used as money. So kids, think of it this way. Okay? The value of salt would be like you could go to the store and buy tennis shoes or a new outfit, new hat, new computer game. And how will you be paying for that? Sir, ma'am, well, I have this bag of salt. And they would take it. They, they would as eagerly take the salt as they would a gold coin or a silver coin. It had that much value in the time of Jesus. At times, salt was of a higher value than gold as far as exchange is concerned. I mean, we wouldn't think of that, right? I mean, we're, we're thinking, you know, oh, can't of Morton salt's worth some value. It's one of the cheapest things you can get out of the store. Not in that day and age. 
It has value. I'm always struck every once in a while when I'm up to Manistee and we have our uh, uh, meeting up there uh, with Denny Sullivan and, and uh, Mike Coy. Get talking with Denny, who used to work for Morton Salt, about the way in which salt is mined and how they uh, get, make it into a brine and a solution. And then it comes up and they force it up through pipes and it goes to the Morton Salt place. And then he tells you about places in Ohio and Detroit and Canada. It, it's it's mind-boggling to understand what it is that God's put into this earth 3,500 feet down. Okay? 3,500 feet down below the surface of the earth is all of this salt. Okay? But they didn't have the means of getting it that way, right? In Jesus' day. It had great value. So when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth. One of the things we have to understand is Jesus was looking at them saying, you are of great value. You're valuable. Peter, when writing in 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 and 10, talks about, you know, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are the people who belong to God. You have value. You're salt. So, so understand that. When, when Jesus says, have salt in yourself, salt is good, and so on, understand, for them, this was of something of great value. And that's what he's saying. We, as Christians, as the church of Jesus Christ, are of great value. But what we also miss here is its necessity. When Jesus uses the word salt, to these disciples, there's all sorts of Old Testament stuff that starts emerging. For example, Leviticus chapter 2 tells us that every grain offering, in order to be acceptable to God, had to be seasoned with salt. If it didn't have salt, God would not accept the grain offering. And if we go to uh, two other passages, Ezekiel 43 and Ezra chapter 9, we learn that their meat offerings also had to be seasoned with salt. Every sacrifice, every offering, had to have salt accompanying it. If I want to be, Romans 12, 1, a living sacrifice, the only way I can be a New Testament living sacrifice is to have salt. God accepts no sacrifice without salt. No wonder Jesus is emphasizing here. Have salt in yourself. 
if you're going to be one who is persecuted, your being persecuted does no good if there is no salt. Salt is the necessary ingredient for the Christian life. Just as it was the necessary ingredient for the sacrifices of the Old Testament, for God to accept their sacrifice of that grain or of that animal. It had to have salt. For God to accept the sacrifice of ourselves as living sacrifices in, to his praise, to his glory, it needs to be accompanied with salt. Have salt in yourselves. Your life is to be the salty life. So what was the purpose of this salt? Why was salt so valuable? Because they didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have freezers. They had no way of preserving food except to salt it. Salt was its preservative. And I know we could, we could probably say, well, salt also adds flavor. Yeah, but that's not the primary means that it's being used here in the Old Testament. Nor is it the primary means of what Jesus is focused on here. The point is that salt preserves. Salt keeps. That is what we are to do. Now look at the context. Look at the context. How are we to be salt? One, we are to be a sustainer. That's what salt does, right? It preserves. We are to sustain the faith of other believers. We are not to be the stumbling block. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, we are not to be that. We are to be salt, and salt sustains. So here is someone who is young in faith. What are we, what is our purpose? What is, what is our responsibility as a believer in Jesus Christ? To ruin that faith? To cut that faith off? No, we're there to sustain it, to keep it going. To continue it. We're there to be the preserver of that faith that builds and strengthens, obviously through God's grace and through God's Spirit, but we become the means not to be the stumbling block that erodes that faith. We have children. Our responsibility of to those children as believers in Jesus Christ as we vow at baptism is what? To set an example of godliness before them. And I'm not supposed to do anything, anything that would cause that little one to stumble. I am to be a sustainer of that child's faith. I am to be salt 
to that child. I am to be as a salt shaker that is being poured out upon that baptized child. That's what Christ is calling us to. So you have to ask ourselves, each one of us, am I sustaining the faith of the children of this congregation? Am I sustaining the faith of new believers in this congregation? Am I sustaining those who are new in faith in this congregation? That is my responsibility. That's what I've vowed to do. But it also means to be consistent. If salt has lost its saltiness, it's good for nothing. Once salt no longer has the ability to preserve, you throw it out on the path in Jesus' day. It was useless. What's he saying? We need to be consistent in our saltiness. It's not just salty on Monday. It's salty on Tuesday, it's salty on Wednesday, it's salty on Sunday, it's salty the whole week through. Every day, every moment, we are to be consistent as believers in Jesus Christ, giving ourselves as living sacrifices to Christ, living not for self, but living for Christ, seasoned with salt. Consistent. So if your eye causes you to sin, which may become a stumbling block to someone else, what should you do? Mortify that sin. Put it to death. If your hand causes you to sin, what should you do? Put that sin to death so that you can be salt. You can't be salt if your hands are continually involved in sin, if your eyes are continually involved in sin, if your feet are continually taking you to places of sin, you have lost your effectiveness. You have no right to stand as a witness against someone else. How foolish for the drunk to tell another drunk he ought to stop drinking. How foolish for one of us who are supposed to be salt if we have lost our saltiness to be seeking to lead and guide another believer to Jesus Christ. Get rid of the sin. Be consistent. Be a sustainer. Colossians 4, 6. So that in all of your conversation, home, work, beach, campground, shopping mall, gas station, in all of your speech, let it be seasoned with salt. 
Lastly comes the command. And be at peace with one another. Be at peace. Live in peace. Live in harmony with your fellow church members. When we leave this place and we cut one another down and tear one another to shreds, what do our children gain from that? You put a stumbling block in their way. What does a new believer do when they overhear that conversation over coffee? What do people at work do when they hear us talk about fellow church members? You can get all of that from the world. The church is to present to the world salt. We are the difference maker of this world. Called out of darkness, marvelous light to declare his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder in your word, this call of Jesus to live as salt. Father, we pray that as we live in this world, that others will see Christ living in us. Father, we are grateful for those who have given their life for this nation. But we are more grateful, Father, for those who have been martyrs for the cross of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that we too might be salt in this world for the glory of Christ. And God's people say, Amen.